Hi, and welcome to Yokine Baptist Church. This is a sermon recording taken from one of our regular church services. You can find out more about us as well as more recordings like this one on our website, yokinebaptist.church, or by connecting with us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today. We really hope you're encouraged by this message and that it draws you closer to God. My name is Yvette Cherry. Um, I come to you from the Ministry Centre at Baptist Churches WA, uh, where my role there is to support and encourage women in pastoral and leadership ministry in our churches. So I just work one day a week there, and a lot of my job involves going for coffees with women in ministry leadership, uh, which is a pleasure and a joy, and encouraging them as they do their work in churches. And um, I also have run in the past an event called Fresh Conference, which some of you may have um, known me from. Um, I'm married to Lee, and we have four girls. Uh, they're 7, 9, 11, and 13. And currently, I'm also studying full-time. So I'm in a bit of a sprint season of my life right now because um, I have a little bit of time to finish my Master of Ministry. And I thought, well, with all the changes that have gone on this year, study was probably a pretty good option right now. So I've got my head down, and I'm in my books a lot at the moment. I just want to, I know Pastor Jason isn't here, but maybe he'll listen to this later, and I just want to give him a little shout-out and a thanks for inviting me. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here. And I noticed, actually, as I walked up the... the the ramp and into the door, I felt the presence of God in this place. And it's really lovely. I get to do a bit of this kind of thing, go to churches where I've never been and um, to preach and share. And I just love to walk into a church building and just sense God's presence. And then I popped into the prayer meeting that happens before the service. What time does the prayer meeting start? Half Half past nine? Oh, 9.15. I popped in there and there were some people praying and I sat down and the first thing that was I heard um, um, was my sister Liz prayed for. Um, So, and it was a beautiful prayer. And who prayed for my sister Liz? Oh, thanks, Lucy. It was was so lovely and you mentioned the whole family by name and um, I thought I'm in a really good place here today. Um, so this morning I want to tell you a little, uh, we want to get, walk through the story of Joshua 22, but before we do that, let me tell you about something my young friend said to me the other day. So she started attending a, a new church a little while back with her husband and their, their baby daughter, and she said to me, I have a confession to make a bit. She said, when we started going there, people would come in late, and this, this is a big church, and it has a cafe attached to it. And I think the cafe must be open during the service um, because it's, in, it's part of a larger community thing. But she said, I would notice people coming to the service late and they were holding a buzzer. And I thought to myself, why are they late and they're ordering coffee? And they're going to have to leave the service to go collect their coffee when their buzzer goes off. You know what I'm talking about, right? You get them and you put them on the table at the cafe, and it gives you a fright every time it goes off, and you go get your coffee. So she says, why, why, when they're already late, are they going to go out and get their coffee and then come back in? And she said to me, I made some assumptions about their faith. I assumed they weren't really committed. They weren't honoring God by being there on time. They cared more about their morning coffee than they did about their worship. And then she said, and then we decided to check our daughter into 
the crèche for the first time. So they filled in the form, they settled her in the room, they went back to the carer, and the carer, as they walked out the door, said, you'll need this, we will buzz you if we need you. And as she handed over the buzzer, she went, oh, right. (laughs) That is called the fundamental fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is when we assume that when we see someone do something bad, we assume we make assumptions about their character based on the thing they did. We assume that they're a bad person or, or, or bad things about their character based on what we saw them do. But then if we were to do the same thing, um, like rock up late because we've got a small child and small children are unpredictable and it can be really hard to get out of the door if there's a poo explosion or whatever, we, for our own self, we go, oh, no, I'm, I'm not a bad person. I, don't, I, I value God and worship. I was just late because they pooed. And so to others, we, we see them, we see what they did and we think something of their character, but if we did the same thing, we would just think, well, it was just circumstance. I even actually, it happened on the way here this morning. So someone flew through the light and I was like, oh, what an impatient person an inconsiderate person but what if like they were driving their wife to the hospital what if she was in labor you see my mind goes straight away to a negative assumption about their character rather than their situation the fundamental attribution error so we're going to look this morning at a passage where this happens and we're going to look and see that when we make these kinds of judgments about each other it can have a really negative effect on community. Before I do that, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the people who have gone before us who have learned to walk with you. I thank you that their mistakes are written down and that we get to learn from them. And as we dive into scripture, I pray, God, that um, you will fill us with a sense of humility, a sense of longing to do your will, And I thank you for all the ways that that Scripture teaches us. Amen. Okay, our story this morning begins in Joshua 22. And I know that you have been working your way through Joshua. So I think that you've got a pretty clear idea already, I'm just going to assume, of the things that have happened before the passage that we're looking at. So we're in Joshua 22. It's on the screen. I apologize if it's a little bit too small. Uh, but hopefully you might have your Bible or your phone and you can look on in front of you. So our story begins in Joshua 22 at the city in the city or the township of Shiloh at the tent of meeting where the allotment of land for the, the people of Israel is drawing to a close. And I think you looked at that last week. Um, as you've seen in previous weeks, Joshua um, has divided the land west of the Jordan among the tribes who had not previously been given land. Um, and the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh had, sorry, east, and those tribes had been settled on the west side of the Jordan. And the land that Moses had given them, as the story tells us back in Numbers 32. So just to make that a little clearer, because I think I just said that poorly, I have a map. Do we have a map there? Oh, no map. Okay. Anyway, I, had a, I thought I had a map. Um, 
So we've got on one side, on the western side, we've got the, the two and a half tribes. So the Manasseh tribe was, was over both sides of the Jordan. And, and these people had asked Moses, could we settle here because we like this land and they were, um, they were farmers um, and they had livestock and it was suitable for them. So before anyone had entered the promised land, Moses had given them an allotment of land already. But the deal would be that they would come with the tribes to, to um, fight for the promised land and that they wouldn't go back and settle in that area until all of that was done. Okay, so they had requested that they settle on the land of Gilead rather than cross over the Jordan into the promised land. They had all that livestock and the, and, and the land was good for their animals. They agreed that their fighting men would carry on, uh, but their wives and their women and their non-fighting men would stay west of the Jordan where they would be settled. So here we are at the place in the story where the fighting is over. The promised land has been taken and all the tribes have been given land. And true to the promise that Moses had given, the tribes of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh are given their blessing to return home to their wives and their children, all the people that they've not seen in a long time. So we're going to read from Joshua 22, and I'm going to try to remember to read slowly. Um, and I'm going to read. I'm going to read all of this as we go, and stop every now and then, and explain and and, and notice things and make points. So um, we'll be doing quite a bit of reading this morning because <clears throat> it's a great story. Twenty-two one. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, "You have done all that the Lord, or sorry, all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded." And you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord God gave. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the command and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God and to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given land in Bashan and then to the other half of the tribe, Joshua gave the land on the west side of the Jordan along with their fellow Israelites. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and a great quantity of clothing, and divide the plunder from your enemies with your fellow Israelites. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. We're going okay? Right. I imagine that this is a pretty nice moment for the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So they're all in the tent of meeting. And Joshua has said to them, well done. You kept your promise. You did a good job. And in front of their fellow Israelites, he praised them as faithful 
and, and he tells them to return home with all the spoils of war that they've been given and to share it amongst their people, their non-fighting men um, and, and their, their families. And, um, and, and he just urges them to live as faithful people of God as we've seen that promise or that, that kind of request throughout the reading that we've um, seen in Joshua so far to live faithfully. It's a really happy beginning. They've been faithful to God as they promised Moses they would, and they've received their reward for keeping the promise. But then let's look at what happens next. After setting off for home, the narrator of the story tells us this. When they came to Gelioth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built an altar on the border of Canaan and Gilioth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Oh no. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had built an altar. And not just any altar, it's an imposing altar. I take that to mean that it was really, really big on by the side of the Jordan there. And we see here that the whole assembly gathers at Shiloh, the official house of the Lord, where we see that in chapter 18 they had set up there as the house of the Lord. They'd set up the tent of meeting um, that housed the holy items using sacrifice in the Ark of the Covenant. So Shiloh was clearly the official holy place for the people. Why were they so angry at their fellow Israelites that they would go to war against them? They'd only just sent them off with their blessing and they were just traveling home. And now they've seen what they've done, built this massive altar, and they're like, let's go to war. What did the altar mean? Had the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-driver Manasseh turned away from God so soon? And that, that's obviously what the assembly assumed. Before they go to war, at least they have the good sense, though, to send a, delegate, a delegation to meet with the tribes on the western side of the Jordan. It's eastern side. Yes, I keep getting my geography mixed up, don't I? You call me out, thank you. So the Israelites sent Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourself an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sinner pure enough for you? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. Are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not the wrath come on the whole community of Israel. He was not the only one who died for his sin. I know that you've spent, like I said, a number of weeks studying Joshua, so I think that some of that will trigger some memories and some thoughts for you. 
you probably understand the significance of what they're saying about the key events that were mentioned in the speech. The delegates are led by Phineas, who you might remember is particularly zealous in his punishment for those who break covenant with God. You might recall that it was Phineas who speared and killed a man and a woman who had entered the tent of meeting and worshipped Baal at Peor. And it was Phineas who dealt with Achan, who had stolen and buried some of the spoils of war. In both accounts of Peor and Achan, the sins of the individuals affected the whole community. When the people forgot to be faithful to God at Peor and joined the Moabads in worshipping of false gods, a plague fell on the people and 24,000 were killed. The people said they lost their first battle of Ai because of what Achan had done. They clearly understand that the sin of one person or one group affects the whole nation of Israel. The sin of one group places them all in rebellion against God. And their experience tells them that that doesn't work out well for them. Clearly the delegation believe that the altar represents an idol and that the tribes have abandoned Yahweh to start worshipping and making sacrifices to other gods as they left them, as they left them with their blessing. They, they've gone, look what you've done. They continue, then the, the story continues with the response of the accused. Then Reuben, Gad, 20, verse 21, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, the mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel know, if this had been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. So they didn't build an altar to worship other gods. They built it as a reminder, as a monument to their loyalty to God. And look at their humility as they respond. They say, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. He knows what we've done. Even as they're convinced that God knows that their motives are pure, they're willing to be corrected if they've done anything wrong. If we have done the wrong thing, they say we'll accept God's correction. So now that we know what's going on here, let's think about the situation for a moment. I feel like I keep getting my geography mixed up, so yell out if I do it again. <laughs> the imposing altar was built on the eastern side of the Jordan. Yes? In Canaan, in the on the promised land side. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh lived on the other side of the Jordan. So hardly practical to build an altar <laughs> on, the, on the side of the, the river that you're going to have to cross regularly to make your sacrifices. And, and it, it wasn't impossible. It might have been maybe 30 metres wide at the time. So it's been dammed up now. And if you Google it and take a photo, you could kind of jump over it. But at the time, I asked my Old Testament lecturer, and he said maybe 30 metres across would have been about right, except for when it flooded, and then it was a bit wider. But if this is the thing that you'd built to make a sacrifice, why would you do it on the opposite side of the river to where you lived? That doesn't really make any sense, does it? And so the passage also tells us that they'd heard that they built an altar. This altar was on their side. They could have actually gone and had a look at this altar that was built. And if they'd gone and had a look, what would they have seen? Would they have seen ashes 
and, and bones, evidence of sacrifices being made, no, they wouldn't have seen that at all. They would have seen that it wasn't an altar built for a place of sacrifice. Speaking as one unified body, they continued their defence speech. Verse 24, no, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord? What do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us. And you, you Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That's why we said, let's get ready and, ready and build an altar. Not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it's to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and our fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it for us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings and sacrifices other than the the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. They haven't done anything wrong. They're innocent in their actions. When Phineas, the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praise God. And then they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites had lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. So the story closes with celebration. The tribes are glad that everyone still loves God. The altar gets to stay. The altar is given a name and it will serve its purpose for future generations. I think they actually had good reason for building the altar, the tribes of of Gad and and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Clearly they felt afraid that the others would at some point exclude them from being part of the people of God. The Jordan River, although not a significant barrier, like I said, only maybe 30 metres wide, Um, acted like a kind of division between them. The larger tribes, the larger gathering of tribes, assume that the physical separation will continue to contribute to the hardening of their hearts. I think they also sense something, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the way that the others related to them, the kind of othering that may have that they might have felt in the way that they spoke or acted. And I think there are a few hints in the passage that make me feel this way. And if you put yourself in the shoes 
or the sandals rather, of, of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, you might be more likely to notice it. As they walked away from the tent of meeting to go home, I think maybe even they started talking about it amongst each other. In the speech in verse 15, the rest of the gathered assembly living in the promised land said to Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe, the whole assembly of the Lord says. But wait a minute, aren't Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh also part of the whole tribe of the Lord? Aren't they part of the gathered assembly? So even in their language, it seems as though they've been othered. You are not in. You're not part of the whole assembly of the Lord, you people who live on the other side of the Jordan. What other factors might have made Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have felt that way? Could they have detected it in their body language, in, in the conversation that stopped when they walked into the room? Could they have sensed that their, their brothers were worried that when they left and they crossed over the Jordan that they wouldn't be a part of them anymore, that something was going to happen? What, what, what gave them that fear that they'd need to build an altar before they, when they got to the river and they were like, looking back, well, let's do something before we cross over and get home. Let's do something that shows that, we're, that we are here and we are part of you. What, what caused that, them to even have that feeling? I think that the passage speaks to us today, that maybe that we do this to each other too sometimes. I want to suggest that there are little Jordan rivers running through many of our church gatherings. Now, I don't know you here, and I've never been here before, so I'm not thinking of any situation. Um, and being a guest, well, maybe that gives me the freedom to speak freely. Um, you know that I'm not addressing any particular concern that I know about. I know of none. But I wonder if there are little Jordans here. What do I mean by little Jordans? I mean the little currents that run through the congregation that separate some from others the little barriers that could lead to conflict and if not dealt with, with the separation of a whole people group. What are some examples of little Jordans you might see in a church? When I was preparing this message, I, I actually kind of got to this point and I had a little mental picture and sometimes that's how God speaks to me, just through images in my mind and I actually was standing right here um, facing you all this way in this building I've not been in before. And I imagined in my mind just this tiny creek and it ran across there and then down the middle and out that way. And it was teeny tiny, um, like you could just step over it like that. Um, it went down that way. And um, as I saw in my mind, you'd kind of stop noticing it. You just kind of stepped over it and just so it didn't wet your shoes, but you, you didn't really th even think about it anymore. It was just tiny. It wasn't even a creek. It was just a stream of water that ran through. And as I thought about that more, I kind of thought, well, God, what, is, what does that mean? And I thought maybe that it meant, here's some, some suggestions. I'm not saying it's any of them. But maybe there's a small division that you've stopped noticing around age where, where perhaps children could be forgotten or, or elderly could be forgotten, just a small thing. Or, or maybe division around race or ethnic background. 
maybe making assumptions about a person or a group based on the way they dress, the car they drive, the suburb they live in. Maybe making assumptions about someone based on the way that they worship. Or the language that we use that could make some feel that they're not good enough, they're not holy enough to be part of the church community. Or the language that we use that might make some feel that some are in and some are out. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know what it is. And maybe, maybe it would be good to just pray and God say, does that mean anything or does that mean nothing? Is there something even that makes me feel a little bit on the outside? Or is there something that maybe I do that, that makes someone else feel a little bit like they're on the outside? That might be worth even just putting some prayer time into it. I think the passage shows that we must seek to understand each other, that we must seek to be unified as one body or we risk destroying the body altogether. Remember, it was lack of understanding that made them say, let's go to war, and that would have decimated them all. The gathered assembly got one thing right. They went to speak to their brothers and sisters before they went to war against them. But I believe before that they were probably getting a few things wrong. Their brothers and sisters across the Jordan built an altar because they were afraid. They felt othered. They felt that once they crossed the Jordan, they were going to be on the outside of the community and that the tribes on the inside would forget about them and deny their rights to be called sons and daughters of God. So who do we consider the other? What little Jordans could be running through our congregations today? Maybe you can't think of any, but I think it could be worth going asking God to show us. What unified the Western and the Eastern tribes at the end of this passage was the discovery that they both still loved and worshipped Yahweh. The Western tribes... And the eastern tribes had the same way of expressing that. But the tribes of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh had found a new way to express some worship. And it was good and it was right and it was beautiful and it was okay. We can learn from this that diversity in the way that we express our love for God is okay. What remains essential is that we love him. And we as a church can remember that it's not the tent of meeting in Shiloh that binds us together. We read earlier in Ephesians about unity. What are we unified around? We're unified around Christ. In Galatians in 3.28 it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when we are unified in Christ, when we are following after Christ, we're becoming more like him, and then we're becoming more like each other. And that's what unifies us. There's plenty of symbols in this story. There's the tent of meeting, which unifies them in their worship. And there's the Jordan River, which acts as a, as a possible divide and a catalyst for this discussion. We are unified around the cross, aren't we, that represents Jesus That's what unifies us, that we're all followers of Christ. And I think the beautiful thing as, is that as we grow to be more like him, we grow to be more like one another. Let's pray. Father God, I don't want to put too much stock in 
having little pictures in your mind when you're preparing a sermon, but if there's anything in that, God, I pray that you will reveal it to the right hearts at the right time. I pray, Father God, that this um, continue to be a church that loves one another and loves the community really well. I thank you for their unity in Christ. I pray that they continue to always be seeking after a closer relationship with you and a greater likeness to Christ. And so as they grow closer to Christ, they grow closer to one another. I pray, God, that you'll help them not make assumptions about each other, the little things that begin to cause division. I pray for open communication, for easy conflict resolution, for um, the generosity of, of thought for one another. I ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. And extra thanks to those that have donated to us online. It's your generosity that enables us to continue our ministry to the local community and beyond. It's because of you that our ministry is possible. If you would also like to support us, visit ybc.church give. You can also access our website to find out more about our community by visiting yokinebaptist.church or by connecting with us on Facebook. If you've enjoyed listening to this message, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and God bless.